0: tom mullen talks freedom hello everyone and welcome back to tom mullen talks freedom today my guest is mike Termott. mike served as a police officer in broward county from 2010 through 2021 his prior career was in finance and economics and included work with banks the white house office of management and budget international development agencies, federal agencies, and trade associations. Mike also started a professional education business for bank executives, which he ran until 2009, including conferences, webcasting, and strategic consulting. Mike is seeking the Libertarian Party's nomination for president in 2024 and joins us today to talk about it. Mike, welcome to the show.
1: Thank you very much. It's good to be with you, Tom. Great to have seen you in New York, by the way.
0: Yeah, it was a lot of fun. I brought something home that kept me in bed over the weekend, but I'm over that now. So it was a lot of fun while we were there anyway.
1: It was a a tremendous amount of fun while we were there. We were together at the New York State. I apologize. My phone seems to be making noise today. I have a lot of friends in Florida. And today, is one of the days after the hurricane during which everyone is recovering. So we're thinking about all of them, of course.
0: Yep. I did that myself for 10 years while I lived there and just happened to move down for like the worst hurricane year, I think, in this century, which was 2004 and was there for 2005. So I know what they're going through. Yeah, four and five
1: and seven were really rough. I was down there too. I lived in Florida for almost 20 years.
0: So... Before we get into the Libertarian Party and and your campaign for president, I thought people should maybe get to know a little bit about your background. It's interesting because if I presented the three phases that I know about, where you were an economist who advised the White House at one time, a police officer, and a Libertarian, I don't think anyone would put it in the order that it actually happened, where you're the economist first. And then you become a police officer and then you become a libertarian. A lot of times, you know, at least the economist comes after libertarian. Well, it's actually
1: slightly stranger than even that. I became a cop and a libertarian at the same time. So I'll let you get your brain around that, which made for a lot of interesting conversations with uh, my fellow officers. Yeah, I was a professional economist for many years I worked in the banking industry for a while and out of business school, went back to to grad school in the late 80s, early 90s. I worked as a professional economist for some agencies, including the White House, for a couple of years, as you mentioned. Although characterizing it as an advisor has probably given me too much credit. As a young economist, I was among the lowliest of the low you can imagine. So my job was merely to help keep track of the federal budget and understand the the law and how the budget affected the law and the law affected the budget and that sort of thing. Yeah, and I, I worked as a free market advocate in the banking industry for quite a few years after that. A partner of mine and I ran our own business in the banking industry, educating bankers for quite a few years. I taught economics at the university level in Florida at a couple of different universities at Barrie and at Nova for our Florida fans out, very fun universities. And uh, yeah, I went into the police academy. I was 49 in the police academy. I worked as an officer from age 49 to 60. I retired just last October. So I'm still in recovery. Wonderful experience, by the way. It is a young person's game. So I recommend for those that are interested in police work, I recommend not waiting quite as long as I did, but being a mature adult does make for a better officer I can tell you that much uh, straight up as a as a training officer for several years you got to see uh, how much maturity matters and uh, i suppose that could be said for any industry right any business but in police work in particular there's an enormous amount of discretion that officers have and so maturity and uh, frankly a libertarian outlook really
0: matter so you're an economist, and with everything you said, some people get into academia. They never leave because they've kind of kind a secure lifestyle there. What made you want to become a police officer, and what made you become a libertarian in any order you want?
1: Well, I always wanted to be a police officer. I'm a big believer in public service. I first took the entrance exam to a police department in 19—I believe it was 89 or 90— with the Metropolitan Washington Police Department, Washington, D.C., and just decided that it wasn't enough money. I probably should be a little bit embarrassed by that statement to, to make such an important decision, turn on money, but I wanted to raise a family and just didn't see a way to get there from here. In those days, even in those days, $27,000 was not a lot of money in Washington, D.C. So I stayed in grad school and put it off for, for 20 years. I uh, put it off for a long time and finally made the jump when I thought the appropriate time had come. I'd already figured out financially how to get the kids through school. So there was a good time to do it and figure I better do it, you know, in my 50s instead of in my 60s. So it was just a matter of putting it off. Being a libertarian and being a cop are awfully compatible if you have the right attitude. I believe that police were correctly viewed is a matter of protecting people's rights. Indeed, as a libertarian, I believe that that is the sole legitimate function of government is to protect our individual rights. And as an extension of that, police work should should view itself in, in, as being in the same business. And I believe that the vast majority of cops, arguably all cops, believe that to be true. Officers are in the business of protecting you from others who would take your rights. And increasingly, police officers understand they're in the business of protecting the government from taking your rights. Obviously we have a lot of, a lot of ground to, to make up in, in that.
0: You know, it's funny on the libertarian side of things, my favorite writer probably of all of the libertarian literature was William Norman Grigg. And he really devoted the last 15 or so years of his life to police abuse, and he had no shortage of stories. So I mean, on one hand, we have what seems to be a serious problem. On the other, I kind of do the numbers sometimes. And I say, well, there's about 600,000 of them out there. And if you subtract the federal goons, like in the IRS, who shouldn't be carrying a gun anyway, you still probably have a half a million or almost that of police officers. So If most of them, or even some small dinky percent were committing these abuses, we'd be seeing hundreds a day and we don't. So how do you sort that out? Is there a problem? How widespread is it? And what is the problem?
1: I think there is a problem, but I would say that about any industry, any business, I would say there's always an improvement that can be made. The difference in police work is I think twofold. One is it it's problem mistakes problems errors in training we can talk about each each of these have more important effects sometimes than in other businesses right i think that there's a difference between let at the moment let's characterize most of these problems as stakes i think there's a, a bigger impact when someone makes a mistake and violates your fourth amendment rights than you know getting the wrong size tire to your car right and and so Different businesses have different effects on us when things go wrong. The other thing in police work is that it's a a government-controlled business by its nature, by the way. I believe that we need to privatize our control over police, but there's really going to be no such thing as completely privatizing police because it needs to be governed in a geographic sense. You can't go house by house. So we can talk about that as well. But being in the government sphere, uh, there is a certain difficulty in controlling how officers behave because the unions have local politicians wrapped around their fingers. And that's, that's really a, a shame. We, we have ways, we believe, we have ways of getting around that, uh, beginning with ending qualified immunity and imposing a requirement for third-party bonding. In other words, to put in private sector liability insurance we think we can get around a lot of the, the crap that that unions uh, caught. So there's inherently some some problems in in the way that police are uh, managed where we can make a lot of make up a lot of ground. And then the other problem is that police work is mostly not violent, right? It most interactions are not supposed to be violent. And yet because some are some interactions and and need to be, I mean, just by the nature of, of the work. I think that we, we dentally bias our training toward being overly prepared for that violence, if that makes sense. It's a, It's a necessary evil to be ready for violence, but I believe that our training is biased in terms of getting officers to behave the way that we want them to.
0: Let's take a short break for this important message. Friends, if you're enjoying the content here on Tom Mullen Talks Freedom, you can support my efforts here a couple of ways at tommullentalksfreedom.com slash support. You can join my Patreon for as little as $3 per month and get machine transcripts to every episode and access to my members-only MeWe group, while all access patrons also get my paid subscriber-only articles and videos. Or you can become a VIP patron to get all of that, plus access to all of my online courses and a signed copy of the Tom Mullen book of your choice. Now, if you prefer Substack, I also post my paid subscriber-only content there. Find links to all the ways you can support the show at Tom slash support. That's Tom slash support. Become a supporter of Tom Mullen Talks Freedom today. And now let's get back to our episode. someone, have no experience. I've never ridden along with any police officers. I know nothing about it. But when I look at the videos of some of the highly publicized cases where somebody gets shot and it looks like it was not justified, it seems like the officer is trained to react to any disobedience, no matter how innocuous, as if it's a threat. And I even, it seems like there's some panic there on the officer's part. Is there anything to that? That's just my observation and it could be wrong.
1: No, absolutely. Both of those are true. A lot of the mistakes that officers make are out of fear, uh, which is why I always say, if you're if you're going to commit a crime and you have a choice, you want to be arrested by the, the biggest badass in the department because <laughs> that officer will will not fear you and panic and do something stupid, right? In that sense, it always helped to have gray hair. My hair started going gray as I was going into the academy. And it always helped on the street to have gray hair because people would settle down around me. It seemed like no one wanted to piss off grandpa, I think. (laughs) And that worked for the people that you had to arrest. It helped for victims. And it helped, interestingly, with other officers. You know, no one wants to embarrass himself in, in front of grandpa. So just the... Being able to generate an atmosphere in which people settle down, don't panic, relax, can, can operate in an environment free from fear, that matters a lot. So yeah, I think you really put your finger on something. And the other thing is the way that we conduct training. We need to get much better at de-escalation. We need to get uh, much better at discerning what is something to fear and what is not something to fear. And I I recognize, by the way, I recognize that some of this, well, first of all, all of this is hard, right? And some of this is almost impossible to overcome completely. You know, saying something like, don't be fearful out there is probably not helpful, right? (laughs) You know, there are situations that are just inherently scary. And so we're never going to connect these dots so completely that we're going to make panic situations go away and eradicate mistakes. That would be a stupid thing to imply. But I do believe having gone through the training I was a cop for 11 years, uh, going through not only the initial training, but ongoing quarterly training, I do believe that we are biased towards seeing threats. And we need to really work on ways to not fear certain things. And then I, I think that there's another bias that we don't talk about too often. And I think it's very difficult to talk about. So let see if I can say this without pissing off everybody. There's an old saying in police work that, you know, I'm, I'm going to go home for dinner tonight, right? That everybody says that and everybody says it about each other. You know, it's important that you learn how to do whatever it takes to make sure you go home tonight. There's another saying, I'd rather be judged by 12 than carried by six. You get the point police officers are trained to do whatever it takes to save their own health and life. And on some level, that makes a lot of sense, right? Nobody would, nobody would take this job if they were not given training on how to stay healthy and safe. That is all appropriate. But where I'm going is there is a bias towards saving your own butt instead of someone else's. There is definitely a feeling that my life is more important than than the life of someone else that I may be dealing with. And there is definitely a feeling that the importance of, of making that arrest, particularly in a felony, is paramount and safety becomes secondary. And these are situations I believe that we can correct as a cultural matter but as as you know and to say otherwise would make me look silly cultural matters cultural matters take generations decades to change and police work is something that is that is affected by police culture and by societal culture to such a degree that i think we're looking at decades and decades to get things going in a in what i would consider a, a more healthy direction
0: and of course the police officers are out there enforcing a lot of laws that maybe we wouldn't necessarily want on the books anyway. (laughs) So there's, to me, there's a great opportunity to just cut down on the number of encounters. There's no way around that every encounter with a police officer is an encounter with an armed agent of the state where you have to follow their directions, follow their orders. And, you know, it's one thing if you're suspected of armed robbery, I got no problem with a cop going out there and giving orders to somebody who's suspected of armed robbery or murder or whatever. But when it's some traffic violation, when it's some other innocuous thing, then you've got an armed agent of the state and it starts to seem like a little bit of overkill. So there's an opportunity to cut down there. What do you think of this idea that we treat police departments we run them like fire departments. We only get a cop if somebody calls one.
1: It wouldn't bother me personally, but it would bother the communities that are policed. That's not what, that's not what people want. The people who are paying the taxes for police work just don't want that. They want traffic control and they want patrolling and they want proactive police work. Stop and frisk in New York is where it became popularized, right? Where we've all became aware of it when the Supreme Court said to cut it out is something that every department in the United States does. It's not just a New York phenomenon in, in varying degrees in different ways. And we don't call it that. But proactive police work exists not because police woke up one day and decided that would be a fun way to do our job. It, now, now because of our training and because of the culture, it's now viewed as, yeah, you know, it seems like a great way to do our job. But the reason it exists at at the origin is because that's what communities want. They pressure their politicians to get what they want. The politicians pressure the police chief and hire the police chief. That sounds like he or she is going to be most proactive and that gets passed down. So I think that there's a cultural shift that needs to be turned in, in this regard a little bit. I think the Supreme Court was correct in telling New York City to cut it out. Uh, I've always believed that. But it is a big, big deal. And even if you weren't stopping and frisking, you would still be patrolling. And you would still have to have traffic control because that's what, that's what communities want. Polling data show that communities want either the two out of three, you know, we're talking 60 to 70%, depending on the community, people want the same level of police activity or greater or greater. And and indeed, most Americans split approximately evenly into three buckets. Those that want less, those that want more, and those that want the same amount of police work in their community. And by the way, this is true among young, true among old, true among black true among white true among wealthy and true among poor which is which i found very interesting when i learned that fact so it's not a matter of cutting back police work as much as it is doing doing police work in a way that honors the 4th amendment doing it in a way that honors the 5th amendment and and be careful you know you brought up uh, traffic stops and how you know it would probably help the community and police officers, if we weren't jerks when we pulled someone over for a, for a taillight, right? Yes, that is true. You might be surprised how difficult that is when the real reason you pulled them over is because, you know, you're concerned about what's going on in that block more generally. And then you've got a little bit of fear in the back of your head about the fact that this might be more than a taillight it's most stops are not made just because cops are trying to get a quota of a certain type of ticket there is that phenomenon that goes on and we probably want to be careful about managing that as well but a lot of traffic stops are made because a cop is concerned about something else going on in the community and just trying to find out who's rolling around and that sort of thing i'm not saying that makes it okay or that makes it a good idea i'm just explaining that When the cop who's pulled you over for something that doesn't seem like a big deal is is acting like a jerk. It's because of a combination of his broader concern about the the community and his training. And by the way, you, you mentioned, you know, when we see things on TV on video online and we see these horrific incidents, what do you think the cops are watching? You know, the cops in their training are watching all kinds of videos of cops getting killed in traffic stops. And and so, you know, each side of that interaction is, in some sense, poisoned by a biased view of, of what we can sample online.
0: Yeah, and, and I don't mean to imply that the traffic stop is a one-way street either, because in most of the incidents, it's not like the person stopped, said, good afternoon, officer, what can I do for <laughs> you? You know, usually there's there's some kind of chaos going on with the person resisting or that happens. And, and, and that's where I'm, I'm getting to, I think like if you just had less encounters, you'd have less that go bad, whether or not a lot of the people who would react that way actually are guilty of something else as a whole other subject. Yeah. Well, the big one, of course,
1: Tom, is we need to end the war on drugs. We need to stop managing our huge problem in the United States with the drugs in my view criminalization doesn't work I don't think it's ethical but as, as a libertarian I just don't think it's ethical that that a government does can decide what you're not allowed to put in your body but as ethics aside which is a silly statement as a libertarian I have a hard time saying let's just put ethics aside but even if we disagreed about the the ethics of that situation It would be hard to argue that we have done a good job of helping the United States avoid drug problems by criminalizing. And it
0: would seem that we should have learned this during alcohol prohibition because (laughs) the parallels are, I mean, they're all there. Nobody dies of, of buying a bottle of gin at the store and going blind or die anymore. What they used to, when it was illegal, it was called bathtub gin. And this is just like a lot of the overdoses is because they're spiked with something else. You've got that. The criminal gangs, those all came as a result of prohibition. So it's just, it seems so obvious to us. And it's hard sometimes for me to like, look at somebody who I am putting ethics aside. What works? That didn't work. It's not working now. How long does it have to go on not working before you stop? It it really is incredible to me. It's gone on so long.
1: And by the way, police officers by and large agree with you on 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 that point. cops are willing to do their job still by and large, but police officers recognize that they're not typically i don't want to say a hundred out of a hundred cases, but typically you're not helping someone as much as you could by bringing them to to jail for you know possession. Police officers are always going to be involved with drug problems one way or another because as first responders you're there when things go bad and you you know you, you can't send a counselor into a potentially dangerous situation so cops are going to be involved but i can tell you i have personally my my 11 and a half years of experience i've done a lot more cpr on overdose cases than felony arrest for possession i have taken a lot of people to the hospital with shall I say, a great deal of encouragement. I don't want to make it sound like I was just blatantly violating their their rights, but we do bring bring people to, to hospitals, try to get them into rehab situations, assuming they're awake, right, and there is some discretion. All too often when police officers show up, there's either violence or a, a real critical health crisis going on. And so you don't have a lot of discretion always in how you handle the case. But I think the evidence would would show that certainly non-addictive drugs need to be decriminalized. There is no argument left in favor of, of criminalization of non-addictive drugs being a, a good idea or having any, you know, it doesn't even rhyme with productive. It just doesn't make any sense And I believe that in the fullness of time, the American public will warm up to the idea of of going going further in terms of decriminalization. We will eventually work on decriminalizing drugs that are addictive as well, because we will learn how to handle those things in a better way than thinking that dragging people to jail is how to handle it.
0: Yeah, let's hope so. And I think we could talk about the police angle probably for another hour or more, but I want to get to your campaign for president. And one of the things that you've based it on is something called the gold new deal, which I got to tell you, I have an unhealthy hatred for the the first new dealer, Franklin Roosevelt, as my listeners know, Or, or
1: the green new dealer, the green new dealer is has just as much pernicious potential. Would you agree?
0: Yeah, it does. But what is the gold new deal? The gold
1: about? new deal suggests that we just like the just just like the original new deal that we need a different relationship between us and our government. That's the fundamental premise. You need to start at the origin point and that's what it is. We need a different relationship between us and our state government, a very different relationship between us and our federal government. We need a different relationship between states and the federal government. And lest we forget we need a different relationship between the american government and the rest of the world so it's a 12 point plan that anyone can visit at goldnewdeal.org it's not .com it's goldnewdeal.org but it's a it's a 12 point plan the the flagship of which is giving states an ability to opt out of federal supremacy and to opt into unilateral nullification of of anything at the federal level so it would give a state an option to vote itself. This is not a secessionist argument, okay? In other words, we're trying to save the union here. A state who's who's mad at the relationship it has with the federal government would be able to stay in the union, but vote itself out of federal supremacy, meaning going forward, it would no longer be subject to federal law, federal court orders, federal executive orders that were in conflict with its own laws and respectively it would be able to vote to nullify conflicts that are already on the books so if it's state law conflicted with federal law under our current system federal law rules right it would be able to vote itself out of that particular circumstance retroactively. In other words, it would give states an opportunity to set their own course. It would give states an opportunity to do so in the, the full range of law, including financial relationships with the federal government. A state would be able to, you know, I'm opting out of basically everything except for defense. Everything that's not explicitly in the Constitution is how i would how I would say that. So, a state would be able to say, for example, to the extent to which you want to raise money for the Defense Department, you can send us a bill, but we are not going to have a direct relationship anymore between the federal government and our constituents. You're not going to be able to use the IRS to tax individuals. The state would tax a state opting into this relationship would be able tax its own citizens and send the money to the federal government the idea being with that tom is that individuals you you and i we do not have much of a powerful relationship with our federal government when the irs says you owe us two thousand dollars the best course of action is to give it to them as a practical matter (laughs) i mean you can fight it and i have yeah. But I can tell you, having fought it, I wish I had just sent them the too large in the beginning, right? Once in a while, you can wait them out because they're not very smart, but they are very, very powerful. Whereas a state, states in general would have a much better go at it, standing up to the federal government and arguing on our behalf what what that bill should look like. We also believe that, for example, military intervention abroad, would require a declaration of war, no more of this, you know, federal executive willy-nilly, and that a declaration of war would be subject to approval by two-thirds of the states. So, again, it's, it's very much about decentralizing power from the government to the states. It's giving states an option to chart their own course, much more in line with what the founders had intended much, much more in line with what the founders had intended from the get-go. We have the 10th Amendment that says whatever the Constitution doesn't explicitly say is reserved to the states. So in some sense, we're only codifying that.
0: So your tax plan sounds a lot more like the Articles of Confederation. Was that what inspired it? No,
1: it wasn't. But remember, before the Constitution was amended, the federal government didn't have the power to tax the income of individuals either. There was a long time until that came into place. We made it through the nineteenth century without an IRS. So no, we're not peeling all the way back to the Articles of Confederation, but we are peeling we're peeling back to the Constitution as which it was intended, I believe.
0: And as far as interpreting what power the federal government really has and what it doesn't, would there be like an adjudication process within the state where some kind of process would have to occur to determine, oh, this thing is something that's really not constitutional. We're not going to go along with it.
1: Right. The federal government would have to sue in state court. I'll let that sink in for a moment. In other words, I'm not suggesting it would be a trivial matter to decide up front what is explicitly a constitutional power of the federal government and what is not. I recognize, and good for you for recognizing so quickly as well, that this is an issue that would need some process for handling going forward. But, definitionally, a state that opted out of federal supremacy would not be subject to an argument between its own courts and federal courts, This would require the federal government to sue in state court. You'd have to make your case before judge or judges in a state court. In other words, the bias that I believe exists in the federal Supreme Court, and I believe that historically it is heavy toward the federal government, that bias would not be any longer an issue when it comes to arguments between states and the federal government. Now, one could argue that there'd be a bias towards states in an argument between a state and a federal government. But at some point, you got to say, that's right. That's why we have checks and balances, because humans are biased and imperfect, and we need a a way to resolve conflict. But unless you're going to employ martians or other foreigners to adjudicate arguments between states and the federal government i'm much more comfortable with that process being done at the state
0: level do you think that to implement the green new deal gold new deal i'm sorry did i say green new deal oh my it's a
1: hard one isn't it but that's part of why we're doing this is because we need to get out of the idea of you know people being able to control the space of 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 aspirational objectives for the relationship between us and our federal government. We have aspirations too. We believe we know what the relationship ought to look like too. We are not ceding this to AOC or anyone else. Look, I can be loud and have a big mouth too. We're not ceding that to Democrats.
0: All right. So the gold new deal, in order to do it, is this something that you picture would require amendments to the constitution or do you believe that we're just trying to enforce the constitution that's there
1: no i think that we have to yeah i i believe that we would need a constitutional amendment i i believe that one could argue that you wouldn't need a constitutional amendment but that argument fails in federal supreme court right Again, because of the bias, I mean, you know, most of what we regard as bread and butter every day blocking and tackling federal supremacy is created by the Supreme Court, by the federal Supreme Court. So I do believe that there is a bias there that has to be overcome. And I believe that as a practical matter, not as a constitutional matter, not as an ethical matter, not as a matter of the way I would want it, but as a practical matter, I think it would require constitutional amendment, both. To allow states the option of nullifying law going forward, federal law going forward and and retrospectively, but also to get out from for example, direct taxation from the federal government to individuals would re- require constitutional amendment as an example.
0: Yeah, yeah, for sure. It's funny that actually the the income tax, at least they did get an amendment for that one. <laughs> one of the few things that they're Yeah, you,
1: you you gotta give them props for that on some weird level, don't you? But that doesn't that doesn't make it a good idea. It just means that, you
0: know, power politics. That's a smash mouth power politics. That's what that is. It's funny because I've always said that the whole idea of judicial review goes against the fairy tale we're told, because the fairy tale is All the people elected these delegates, and these delegates decided what powers this government would have, and everybody knew what they were getting into, and it was we the people, and we all are, it's the social contract. But if you need these so-called finest legal minds in the land to tease out of the word some new power that nobody else seems to see that is there, I mean, that's like the opposite of the fairy tale, and it's someone else's fairy tale, it's a fairy tale, it's just not ours, <laughs> yeah. And so, put the burden on the federal government to overcome that they have this power that no one else can see but nine people in black robes,
1: yeah. That's exactly right. You're gonna have to, and maybe it'll still be nine people in black robes, but they're gonna be in places like Albany and Springfield and Columbia and Carson City, they're not gonna be in Washington,
0: yeah. Well, Mike, it's very interesting. You're going to have to come back as your campaign progresses, and we'll talk some more. Where do people go to find out about your campaign?
1: Well, thanks. I appreciate that. You can go to uh, MikeTremont.com. Of course, you'd have to spell it right. That makes it tricky. I'm sure your audience can spell Mike, but my last name is T-E-R-M-A-A-T. So MikeTremont.com is where you can learn about the campaign for the presidential nomination inside the Libertarian Party. And uh, GoldNewDeal.org. Is the platform that we're suggesting not merely for our campaign, but for the Libertarian Party generally?
0: Sounds good. We'll link to those. And Mike, thanks so much for spending this time. Thank you, Tom. It's good to see you. All right, friends, that's going to do it for today. Just a few reminders to stop by TomMullenTalksFreedom dot com slash support. And check out all the ways that you can support my efforts here, including joining my Patreon or my Substack. And if you haven't already, make sure that you go to itsthefedstupid.com to download a copy of my free ebook. It's the Fed Stupid. And as always, if you like the music you've heard here on Tom Mullen Talks Freedom, you can hear more at com. Thanks for listening.
1: The war of ideas has only just begun. Arm yourself with the knowledge you need by heading to TomMullenTalksFreedom.com and subscribing to our email list.
0: And remember, every revolution starts in the minds of the people.